get started, um, and we'll just start with a word of prayer. Uh, most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. Uh, sometimes, Lord, we look at the day and we say, wow, it doesn't look that beautiful. But, Lord, it's a beautiful day whenever you can wake up. Because there are so many people, Lord, who didn't get a chance to wake up this morning. So for all of us who are here, thank you for this beautiful day. I ask that you would be with me and all that you would have for me to say. I thank you for allowing these people to come out and be part of our program today. Help the words out of my mouth and the meditation of my hearts will be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So we talked a little bit yesterday, for those of you who are here, uh, we're, we're on this what we call a stewardship journey. And yesterday we started talking about a concept that we talked about. We called it your mind over your money. You know, the idea that if your mind is in the right place, you don't have to worry so much about the money. And the idea of making sure that you do the type of things that God would have for you to do will allow you to be good stewards. But this week I wanted to kind of expand the the conversation on stewardship. You know, we go to church sometimes, people talk about stewardship, and it's all about tithe and offering and who's being faithful, who's not being faithful. You always hear about these stats that only 30% of the people in church actually pay tithe, and that's to take care of the other 100% of the people in church. So it's a little bit of that kind of like clubbing you over the head, telling you how we're not doing certain things that we should be doing. But the reality is, is stewardship is a much broader conversation. You know, there's so many things that God would have for us to do. So yesterday we started talking about, well, how would you define stewardship? And it's really the management of all of the resources that God has given you to be taken care of in a way that will help to elevate others. That's real stewardship, you know, and that's what we as Christians are really, in my opinion, supposed to be focusing on. So yesterday we talked about mine over over money, but today I wanted to talk a little bit about what I just simply entitled the gift that keeps on giving. And the gift that keeps on giving from a stewardship perspective. And, um, and I would like to start off by saying about a year ago, I came into my church and I go to a church that's called the Capitol Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church in um, Washington, D.C. And the pastor came in and said, um, today we're not going to have a sermon. Today, we're not going to have a song service. Today, we're not going to have a praise team. Today, what we're going to do is I'm going to pass out this form that I want all of us to figure, to fill out. And what this form was supposed to give you an idea is what are your spiritual gifts? And interestingly enough, none of us had really engaged in anything along those lines. And it was quite interesting and informative. So we actually had about 100 questions, and it talked about different things you like to do, you don't like to do, you like this, you don't like this. And right there in church, and my church probably has close to 1,000 members, we ended up taking in all of the information. It was given to a group of people. They synthesized it. And two hours later, they were able to churn back out to us what our data told us was our spiritual gifts. And different areas that you might not have thought that you had strength in, but based on the questions that you actually responded, you had more interest in strengths in areas that you may never have thought that you had. Now, you may say, well, why is this important? Well, if the management of your and the stewardship of what God has given you is your primary job, well, then the next thing you have to understand is really who I am and what are the gifts that I'm supposed to be being a good steward of. Because if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, and if you don't know what God has given you to manage, it's almost impossible to be a good steward. Because remember, we talked yesterday that stewardship is about not ownership. 
In other words, you don't own this skill set. You only get to manage it. So in order to be a good steward, it is so critical that you understand what are the spiritual gifts that God really has given you that you are supposed to be protecting, you are supposed to be managing, and you are supposed to be being a good steward. I found out something very strange about me, and I talked a little bit about this yesterday, and I was telling you that as I've gotten older in life, I found that my creativity has now developed in the kitchen. You know, I, I'm into spices now, and I'm into cutting classes. I like to go to those classes where they teach you how to do knife skills. And it's amazing when you feel comfortable with a knife how much better your food tastes, you know. <laughs> That's one of the things that I've noticed. But, but I also found out by taking my, um, my test that it turned out that my number one spiritual gift was hospitality. I never thought I was that friendly a person, to be honest, you know. I always thought, you know, I'm an attorney. I practiced law for 25 years. I always kind of came off as this guy that, you know, I don't mind negotiations. I like when it starts getting rough and tumble, and, you know, that's when I'm at my best. But then I see that all this documentation tells me that my spiritual gift is hospitality. And to be honest, I found out that it's true because I've been an elder in my church for 20 years. I was a deacon at one point in my church. I'd been involved in other aspects of my church. But the one thing I do every Sabbath that I love is my church actually provides dinner every Sabbath. Every Sabbath we provide dinner, and I work with the hospitality team. And my job is to be down in the kitchen, sometimes being out serving, sometimes being in the back cooking, sometimes just helping to manage things, get all of our servers in line. And I don't know if you ever want to get your humility in the right place, serve food to Adventists on Sabbath. <laughs> I don't know what it is about food. I don't know what it is about everyone thinks they're at Chipotle. You know, I want a little bit more of that. I want a little bit more than this. Don't let these two things touch. I want it on top of this. I like this one in the right quadrant. Let me tell you, I've heard things that have been amazing when you're in this job. And it's gotten me to the point where I love hospitality that I do at church that I really don't like doing the other stuff as much. You know, when I get a phone call and they tell me I'm one of the elders on duty and I have to do certain things, the first thing I think is I hope I'm early in the program so I can get downstairs in the kitchen and start getting ready for hospitality. And I found out, although I didn't quite see it, that this actually turned out to be my spiritual gift. And as it turns out to be my spiritual gift, now I've learned how I get to manage it and be a part of it in a way that I never thought before. One of the things that that spiritual gift has led me to be, and this is kind of interesting, but I'm the guy who buys the aprons that we use. In other words, there's somebody who's in our department that actually created this logo for the hospitality team, and we've got this tagline that's embroidered, you know, feeding your heart and feeding your soul, and, and they gave that thing to me. Remember I told you guys, I'm not real creative, I don't start, and they told me, they said, look at this, what do you think? I was like, <laughs> should be on an apron. And I said, I'll make that happen. And so now we've got these really, really cool aprons that our whole team wears every Sabbath. And it talks about, you know, the Capitol Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church where kindness is intentional and we are feeding for your soul and feeding for your hearts. And so for me, my gifts started expanding in other ways that I'd never thought about. I never thought I'd be the guy who'd be creating aprons for my church. 
You know, I never thought I'd be a guy who'd be working with logo specialists and, and coming to me and saying, what do you think about the blue and the gold? You know, which stuff, that was never me. But I found out that when you place things in front of God and you open yourself up to be willing to turn into maybe those things you may not have thought you were, it is amazing how the blessings that you get will allow you to expand yourself in new areas. And what you sometimes will find out is that the spiritual gift that God has for you is actually to help you to be a better person today so that somehow you may be a better person to somebody else tomorrow. I've always learned and I've thought about this, that part of the reason that I think that we've been called really to, to be a witness to others is not because we have the ability to save people. I think that we've always been called to be a witness to others because at some point in your life, somebody here is going to need somebody to give Jesus back to them. So the whole purpose of you being able to give your gifts and to give Jesus to somebody is because there will come a point in time where you'll be sitting around one day wishing that there would be somebody who could come back and minister to you. And the better job that you have of letting people know who you are, understanding what your spiritual gifts are, using your spiritual gifts to hopefully take you in other places, I believe that that in and of itself is preparing you to really be a great steward for God in what he has called for you to do. So identification of your spiritual gifts is something that you want to do. And at the end of my session today, I'm going to give you guys a website you might be able to go to. And maybe sometime tonight, there's probably about 66 questions, one for each one of the books of the Bible. You sit there and you pick one through five, and at the end of it, you hit send, and it comes back and gives you your top five categories of what your spiritual gifts are. And it may give you a little bit of a flavor. And also, I want to make clear, and I mentioned this yesterday, if you have any questions or comments while I'm speaking, please just raise your hand and we'll jump right in, because this is not going to be simply a monologue on my part. And I just want to make sure everybody's aware of that. So thank you. Please go ahead, man. Mmm, very, very good question. Do you know that you should probably check your spiritual gifts once every five years? Because as you start to develop, as you start to learn more things, as you start to get more talents, so the spiritual gift that you have at 13 may not be the spiritual gift that you have at 53. And the spiritual gift that you have at 53 may not be the spiritual gift you have at 73. So the idea of being open and willing to continually check is also very important because I found out that the gifts that I thought I had in my 30s are not the same gifts that I got in my 50s. And I was talking to a gentleman here yesterday who was 75 years old. He was talking about I'm in retirement. I'm thinking about what I want to do next. But I've got this great idea that I have, but I think I'm too old. And I said to him, you know, sometimes God has used your whole life to prepare you for a moment for such a time as this. And sometimes you're thinking, I'm 75 years old, that I should be getting ready to wind down. But sometimes that's when God is expecting you to start to ramp it up. Think about it. Moses was not ready to lead the children of Israel until he was 80 years old. Elijah, when he was 80 years old, was outrunning chariots. Winston Churchill did not become prime minister until he was 65. And these were individuals who were called upon at critical moments in life for such a time as this to make a difference in the lives of themselves and the lives of others. So please never believe 
that I've gotten to an age where I'm not able to continue to develop and to grow into something more productive. Because sometimes it takes some of us, especially the hardhead ones like me, 50 or 60 years to get yourself ready for what God has in store for you. Sometimes you're so caught up in understanding that this is who I think I am, and it takes God another 20 years to make you understand who he really knows that you are. So that was a great question regarding how often do I keep checking on my spiritual gifts. And I think every five years is a good chance to really sit back and evaluate. Ask yourself some questions. What are you doing? What is important to you now? I mean, I never thought about food and hospitality years ago, but this gift that I, this test that I took caused me to think about it. And it turned out that it was actually true. So first and foremost, spend some time to kind of find out what your spiritual gift is. Be willing to develop it. Because if you don't know what your gifts are, you don't know how to manage. And if you don't know how to manage that gift, then you're not being a good steward of what God gave to you. So point number one is making sure that you understand your spiritual gifts. Point number two, I found this in a very interesting story. I was reading about this individual who was uh, working for um, the United Way. And her job was to actually call individuals who had not given before. So she picked up the phone and called an individual one day who had not given. And when the individual answered, she knew who he was. He was a local attorney. And every now and then I tell lawyer jokes just to keep myself on balance. Um, And he was a local attorney. And she said, I've looked through my research and I've noticed that you have never given any money to us. And the lawyer said to her, well, has your research told you that my mother has been sick for the last 20 years? And then the lady started feeling badly. She was like, oh, my goodness. I didn't. He said, no, no, no. And has, my, has your research told you that my brother lost his job and his family has been destitute for the last 10 years? And the lady is still saying, oh, my gracious, I can't believe I've called this individual. And then he comes back and he says one more thing. And did your research tell you that I have people who have been basically losing everything, who live in my neighborhood. And she stops and says, listen, I'm sorry that I called. And he was like, no, 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 I need to finish my statement. And if I didn't give any of those people money, why do you think I'm going to give you any? (laughs) That's how the story ends. The fact of the matter is, is sometimes you have to understand that there are people who don't want to do anything, even though they see that there's something that needs to be done. In other words, it's important to understand that the real gift that we have is more focused in a different kind of way. There was a great writer named Chesterton who said that the best gift that keeps on giving is guilt. But the fact of the matter is, and this is really where I want to go today, the best gift that keeps on giving is gratitude. Gratitude is the gift that keeps on giving over and over and over again. I read a book from a gentleman by the name of Philip Yancey who says, What's So Amazing About Grace is the title. And the one conclusion that he had in this book that really made a difference in my life is he said, the only difference between being a Christian and being anything else is your willingness to forgive. Are you able to forgive anything? Are you able to get to a point where you understand that it's really not a focus on what people have done to me, but it really should be a focus on what I can do for them? There's a reason why the Bible says that you have to basically treat your enemies a certain way. But you know the best way to handle enemies is to turn them into friends. And the best way that you can transform someone's life is for you to focus on the gratitude that you have in your life. 
You know, that you have to understand that you probably make more impact on people who never, ever talk to you than the people who actually spend a lot of time talking to you. There are people who literally just watch you from afar, and they are able to gauge their whole lives on what they want to do next. Our goal is really to let people know that I'm going to live a life where I am not focused on what I don't have, but I'm going to be focusing at all times on what I do have. I want to tell people about the goodness that God has put in my life. I want people to know that I am content in everything that God has allowed me to have. And if I can live a life of gratitude and people will see that in me, then that's something that I believe is the gift that keeps on giving. Love, gratitude, letting people know that there's something good that's happening in your life, and that is a stewardship that I believe that God wants us all to engage in. I had a lady who was in my Sabbath school class one day, and she said to me, she said, Elder Johnson, there's a lady who I keep inviting to come to church, and she just will never come. And I'm working so hard at this witness, and I'm putting all my time and energy into it, and I just don't know what's wrong. What do you think? Never ask a lawyer, what do you think? <laughs> so I said to her, I said, you know, in the kindest, you know, most gentle way that I could, I said, do you notice that you never smile? Do you notice that you're always a little bit cranky when you're around people? Do you realize that if people don't feel something special in you, they have no reason to want to have any idea what type of God you serve? If your first impression of me is that I'm a guy who looks like there's something wrong with me, why on earth would you want to know what kind of God I serve? The first thing I need to do is to get the front porch of my life looking inviting so that somebody will want to come and have a question as to, hey, Orland, why are you so happy? What, what makes you feel so good? It's so dreary outside. Why aren't we living, you know, what's going on? And then I'm able to tell them about the love of Jesus Christ. For a long time as Adventists, and my mother, my mother's 82 and I'm 56, and, and we talk about Adventism because unlike me, my mother worked for the church for 40 years, and I grew up thinking working for the church was <laughs> a joke. And so we have different types of conversations, but our conversations are getting closer and closer now. And one of the things that she and I talk a lot about is the best witness you can have is to let people know that you are a Christian first and a seven-day Adventist second. Living a Christ-like life is actually more important than the doctrines of our church. Why? Because the Bible tells us that it is about love, and the defining factor of whether or not you're going to get into heaven or not get into heaven is not the question of whether or not you are in church every Sabbath. It was not the question of whether or not you are vegetarian. It's not the question of whether you had 10,000 steps a day. The Bible says that the defining questions will be, when people were hungry, did you feed them? When people were naked, did you clothe them? In other words, it's telling us that the primary focus of what Christ did when he came to this earth is he loved people and treated them well in the space where they were. He didn't come in talking about you don't do this. He didn't come in talking about you should be this. And until you are that, I can't help you. Because the fact of the matter is the church is not a social club for Christians. The church is a hospital for the sick. And if you are sick 
and you need Jesus in your life, what better place should we be than in the church? But sometimes in the church, we are of the impression that if you're not already cleaned up, and if you're not already looking like us, and if you're not already smelling like us, and if you're not already acting like us, then we may not want you to be a part of us. But the concept of being fishers of men, has anybody here been fishing before? Any fishers, people? Uh, the concept of fishing, as you will all realize, is when you catch the fish and bring it into the boat, it's not already finned and scaled and cleaned and all of that type of stuff. In other words, being fishers of men mean that you bring the fish in exactly as they are, and you allow the Holy Spirit to come in and then make a difference in their lives. Sometimes as Christians, we want them cleaned and scaled before they even get into the church. But the fact of the matter is, is God in his infinite wisdom handles all the cleaning up, handles all the refining, handles all of the shaping. And as Christians, our only role is to have a sense of gratitude. And if I can treat you with love and treat you with a type of relationship that you know that I have something positive in my life, then maybe at some point I'll get to tell you about why I go to church on Sabbath. Maybe I get to tell you about why I don't eat bacon. Maybe I get to tell you about why I don't go and watch certain things on TV. But if there's nothing about me that makes a difference in your life, you're never going to want to know. A few years ago at my church, we had this really interesting uh, ministry where we had these license plate covers that we all put and were sold and we put them on our car and on it, it said, follow me to Capitol Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church. It seemed like it made, you know, a lot of good ideas. You're driving around, you see all these people. And I remember one day I'm driving to work and somebody cuts me off. And so they kind of try me to the side. I whip my car back around. I'm still trying to be calm and collected. And then they ride up beside me, and they, they tell me I'm number one. They give me a signal to tell me I'm number one. It'll come to you a little bit later. So they, they, they tell me I'm number one. And when they tell me I'm number one, I roll down my window, and I start letting them know why they are number two in my life. And next thing I know, they're yelling at me, and I'm yelling at them, and I'm telling them, stop cutting me off. And, and then they ran up in front of me and cut me off again, and I kept thinking, I wish I was driving a truck. Boy, I would just take this. And, and then I was so mad, and I was so upset, and then I got into the building, and I got out of my car, I slammed the door, and I walked past the back of my thing, and I looked down, and what does it say? Follow me to Capitol Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church. And it hits me at that moment. Who would ever want to come to your church based on the activity you just engaged in? Who would ever want to follow you when you and this guy are basically ready to start playing bumper pool on the road? Who will ever want to find out what kind of God you serve if I'm not willing to live a life all the time where I can be a positive reflection of Christ and displaying that gratitude all the time? Now, I stopped putting that on the back of my car, just so you know, because I didn't think I was worthy of it anymore, and the pressure was just too much. <laughs> but the reality is, is as Christians, you have to be willing to live a life where you are ready to be on display for Christ 24 hours a day. Question in the back. Yeah. 
And that's the reality. It says that, you know, Paul may plant the seed, Apollo may fertilize the seed, and somebody else may water the seed, but it's God who provides the increase. And the idea is, is that we don't have the ability to provide the increase. And so in, in one of the things that I want us to be thinking about as we're good stewards, being in a sense of gratitude at all times is critical. I don't know if you've ever noticed that there's some people who you will meet and you'll say, that person always seems to be in a good spirit. You know, they always seem happy about something. They always seem pleasant to be around. But then there's those people on the converse where you are like, every time I see them, they look like something is bothering them. You know those phone numbers that come up and you look down and you're like, ooh, I can't talk to this person today, you know, because you know where it's going to go. You know what they're going to say. You know what they're going to do. They're going to drag you down with all the bad stuff that's going on. Believe it or not, people know who you are before you even show up. And part of our job is to live with the spirit of letting people know that all we need to do is just have a spirit of gratitude. You know, somebody who likes to watch movies, and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Lord of the Rings. Anybody seen that movie? The Lord of the Rings has a real interesting concept. The interesting concept is, is that there's this kingdom that's called Gandor, and the king, for some reason, is not there. And so the king is off somewhere else, and in order for Gandor to run, they bring five individuals who are in, and guess what their titles are? They are stewards. They are responsible for handling the kingdom while the king is gone. So one of the first stewards that comes in and gets the job, he actually has the role of being able to do anything you want, just like the king. You make all the decisions, you tell people where to go, you shape everything, you put everybody where you want to be, but the only thing you don't get to do is you don't get to sit on the throne. There's a chair that the king has that only the king gets to sit on. And this first steward in the Lord of the Rings is troubled by the fact that he has the ability to do everything, but he doesn't get a chance to sit on the throne. In other words, he's a steward of the kingdom, gets all of the love, gets all of the perks, gets all of the aspects, and he couldn't handle the fact that he could not be the king. Eventually, believe it or not, this, the first steward got to the point where it was so troubling that he committed suicide. He couldn't take the fact that he didn't get the ultimate prize of sitting on the throne, even though everything else that he had was there as though he was the king. He was a steward, but he didn't want to manage. He felt he should have been the owner. And because he thought he should have been the owner, he was not grateful that he was a steward. My point is, is that we have to get to a point where our gratitude is in being a steward at whatever level God calls us to be. Our gratitude in being in a position where you are happy whatever God calls for you to do. There's some people who have the talent to be elders, but sometimes God needs you to be the Sabbath school teacher for kindergarten. That doesn't mean you don't have the ability to do other things, but it means that he needs for you to be a steward in this area of the vineyard today. Interestingly enough, in that same story of Lord of the Rings, after the individual committed suicide, his son then became the next steward. And his son's attitude was, I am so lucky to be the steward. I basically get to do everything the king can do, and I don't have the problems of being the king. He started looking at it from a completely different point of view. 
And while he was being a steward, guess what? The king came home. And the day that the king came home, he in his position now as steward was the first one to tell the whole kingdom of Gandar, the king is home. And he asked all the people, do you want the king to be back on the throne? And he was the first one to say, yes, we do. In other words, his attitude as being a steward was so content with the role that he had that he wasn't caught up in the fact that he didn't get to be king or worse yet, didn't get to be sitting on the throne of being a king. Gratitude is the best aspect of stewardship that any of us can put in place. And I found it very interesting that when you look at some of the stories that are out there, the struggles we all have is sometimes we are discontent with who we are and what we have. And sometimes God has you in a position exactly where you are for reasons that you will never know. I was just talking with my daughter this morning, and my daughter is very, very interesting. She's the, I call her the smart girl in the family. You know, she's one of those individuals, very intelligent, uh, you know, she did her master's in bioethics. She's finishing her second year of law school. She, she's ready to start working on her Ph.D. and something else. She's at Boston University. She's probably going to be at Harvard doing this thing next year. And, I mean, super intelligent, super intelligent. But the one thing she and I talk about more than anything else is she would love to see her future clear in front of her right now. The idea of why should I have to wait and not know exactly how this turns out? I mean, what's, what, what's, what's up with God? You know, I've been a good person. I, I'm smart enough to handle this. L let me see what it is. And I keep trying to explain to her, I said, Nia, you got to let God give it to you in the time frame that he thinks is best for you. Because sometimes if he told you everything right now, you wouldn't be able to handle it. If he told you that that person that you're dating that you think is the best thing since sliced bread and he told you what that person would turn out to be in the future, you would run and hide right now. But sometimes he needs you there for the moment to learn something that's going to make you much better down the road. You know, when I was growing up, I always thought that I was a guy who was going to, you know, be a doctor. You know, my parents said to me, well, everybody should be a doctor. And so I grew up thinking I was going to be a doctor. And then when I was in high school, I thought to myself, I don't think I'm going to be a doctor because I don't like anything about this whole doctor business. <laughs> you know, the idea of seeing sick people all the time, I thought to myself, there's got to be a better way to live than doing that. And, you know, blood and, and you know, and all of this other stuff. And, and then I realized I didn't even like going to the doctor's office. I didn't like the smell. I didn't like being in hospitals. And so I remember I came home and I told my mother, I was like, you know, I was just thinking this doctor thing, uh, it's not going to work for me. And she was like, well, what else are you going to do? And I'm like, well, I don't know, but this I know, the doctor thing is not going to work for me. As Christians, there are certain things that God will tell you and you will know it for a fact. But then there are other things that God will not tell you that you just have to keep walking day by day till you get to the next step. You may not get to see what the end looks like. You may not get to know what the end looks like, but I love the fact that the psalmist puts it this way, is yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Not to the valley of the shadow of death, but through the valley of the shadow of death, which means that as long as I'm following what God has in store for me, I will get to the other side of whatever my situation is. And the stuff that I go through till I get there, all I need to know is at the end of the 
he will show up for me. And if he shows up for me, I'm going to be in a position where I never have to work or never have to worry about him again. So as Christians, our gratitude has to be in place in order for our stewardship to be strong. And I wanted to just use a couple of texts that I wanted to talk through with us today as we kind of look a little bit more at the whole concept of gratitude and gracefulness. And, and yesterday I had a few people who were actually reading texts, and I hope there are a few people that might have brought their Bibles today, but I'd like for somebody to pull up Matthew 25 and verse 29. And uh, Matthew 25 and, and verse 29. And, and we're talking about the concept of, of making sure that we have a gratitude of stewardship, being grateful and knowing what God has in store for you. And so Matthew 25, 29 gives us a really interesting concept on this. Does anybody have that and can read it for us? Please, go ahead. So for everyone who has or will be given more, will have an abundance, and for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away from him. That's talking about being grateful for what you have. And when you can demonstrate that what you have been given, you really enjoy, and you've gotten it from God, then guess what he does? He always gives you more. When you demonstrate that you have gratitude, more is always given to you. I can't tell you that there's so many people who I've met in life where you wonder, why don't I have anything more? And it's because the little that you have, you're holding on to it so tight. You're holding on to it so tight that you don't get a chance for it to grow in your hands. Because I found, and if you don't remember anything else I say today, please remember this. All of the blessings that you get from God are generally not for you. They're supposed to be used to give unto somebody else to help to lift them up. And if every blessing you have gotten from God for some reason seems that it has only benefited you, something is fundamentally wrong. The gratitude that you have allows you to want to help somebody else along the way. Question in the back. We We receive as we impart, which means that the more that we give, the more that we will get back in return. The more that I look for people to help who are having problems, the more the Lord will use me and the more he gives me for my own problems. I used to tell my kids all the time that when you are having a bad day, the best thing you can do is find somebody else to help that day. First of all, you'll find out that your day is not as bad as some other people's days. But then it will allow you to realize how you can be helpful and allow somebody else up. Question right here. Yeah, being grateful at all times, being in a position where you will know that what I have is all I have is a gift from God. I mean, and, and, the, and the reality is, I mean, if you think about the story of Job, I mean, when you start off with the story of Job, this was somebody who was one of the richest people that was in the world at that time. 
But the Bible doesn't even really start talking about his wealth first. The Bible starts talking about the fact that he was upright and he was perfect in the sight of God. So here is somebody who's upright and perfect, and then the next thing you know, all we hear about is all the calamities that start to happen. His health is taken from him. His wealth is taken from him. He's got friends that are coming to advise him that are giving him nothing but bad information. Why don't you just curse God and die? But what we found out with Job is he did not allow his current situation to shape what his future circumstances would be. And part of being a good steward is learning how to manage what you have in front of you right now, but don't allow that to necessarily cause you to believe that that's where you're going to be forever. Job could have easily thought to himself, this is where it ends for me. Boils from head to toe. Lose all of my income. Living in a life where I just wonder, what have I done wrong? I've got friends and family coming up and telling me, hey, you must have done something. Because that's the only reason bad stuff happens to people. I'm here to tell you that that's not true. Bad stuff can happen to you even if you do everything you're supposed to do. Pain and suffering will come your way. I have this theory, and I tell it to my wife, and she tells me I'm crazy, but I believe that suffering is a byproduct of love. Because I believe that the only reason you suffer is because you love something. Because if you don't love something, in reality, you can't suffer from it. I hurt when my children are hurt because of the love I have for them. I'm in pain when certain things happen to me because of how important they are to me. If nothing is important to me and nothing is loving to me, then guess what? I'm never in pain because there's nothing out there that could cause me to be in pain. So the story of Job is clearly a reminder to us that just because everything is going well today doesn't mean it's always going to be going well. But guess what? When it starts going bad doesn't mean it's going to stay bad either. Some people just simply say trouble don't last always. And we've got to be in a position where we love God and do what he's told us to do. But the Bible tells us clearly that if you elevate somebody else, if you get enough love in your heart, God is going to give you even more than you'll be able to use to elevate somebody else. That's why the story of the talents is so important. That's in Matthew 25. God gives people talents and there was somebody who wanted to do what? Hide their talent. There was somebody who wanted to take their talent and do nothing with it. What the story is trying to tell us is that when you have been given gifts, in order to be a good steward of that gift, guess what? You got to take that gift on the road. You got to take that gift from out of your bag. You don't get to keep that gift in your pocket. You got to go out, exhibit it, demonstrate it, work it, grow it, fertilize it. Let that gift continue to grow because if you don't keep utilizing the gifts that God has given you, what does the scripture say? He'll end up taking it away. And then you sit around and wonder, how come I can't do that stuff I used to do? It's because you didn't utilize and manage and be a good steward of the gifts that God had given you. Our responsibility is to take our situation, sit it at the feet of Jesus, and let God be God. I told our group yesterday, and I'll tell you again, God has not called us to be successful. He has only called us to be faithful. And when you are faithful, for some reason, success always comes your way. Let's look at another text, 1 Peter 4, verses 10. 1 Peter 4, verses 10. 
Anyone have that one? You can read it for us. 1 Peter 4, verses 10. As I tell some of my kids, that's not in the Old Testament. 1 Peter 4. Each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another and as good stewards of God's varied grace. Everybody has a gift. There's not one person who's been born in this earth that God has not provided you with a special gift. Part of our job, as we talked about at the beginning, is to identify that gift. And once you have identified the gift, the scripture says that you have to use it to serve one another, not serve myself, not use it to make my house bigger, not use it to have a better car, but use it so it serves other people. In other words, it's demonstrating the gratitude and the love that you have and putting it in somebody else's hands. I'm sorry, go ahead, man. Mmm. We all have been given some gift of hospitality. Now, some of us can cook and some of us cannot. We know that. Some of us are pleasant and some of us are not pleasant. We know that as well. But guess what? Even in the space that you are, God has still something special for you. Everybody, no matter how mean they want to be, occasionally you can smile. And sometimes just occasional smile will totally transform the whole community there. These young ladies in the front started smiling. The room just changed completely. It puts everybody in a good spirit. And sometimes just having people smiling is enough to change what they needed for that day because the thing is, is when as bad a date as you think you may be having, if you really had a chance to talk to some of the other people in your particular atmosphere, you would find out that you would keep your day instead of their day every day. You know, we talk sometimes about, you know, I'm not getting what I need from the Lord today and, and God's doing something special for me. But the reality is, is he's doing something special for all of us. And the stewardship of that gift and knowing who you are is making sure that this is what God has for you to do. Because what are we looking for? We're looking for one day where he will look at us and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what it's all about. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. It, finish well. Close. Be a good closer. Some of us get started right, but some of us don't close well. Question in the back. Stressful, isn't it? Hmm. Ah, let me tell you this, and this is what I personally believe. I believe that stress and fear and anxiety is the number one tool of the devil. I believe that stress, fear, and anxiety is what the devil puts in our minds that slows us down from being what God would have for us to be. So how do you handle that? This is what I personally do. Well, of course you do your job because you're a warrior and you do what you do. But I will tell you this, that I was reading one day, and um, somebody asked a question, and when you've gotten done with your worrying, has your situation ever been better? <laughs> That's what they're worried about. 
You know, Rick Warren, in his book, uh, A Purpose-Driven Life, has a really interesting quotient in there that I try to use. And he says that there's an inverse relationship between worrying and worshiping. So when people's worry level is high, that's because their worship level is low. But when your worship level is high, your worry level disappears. And I try to live my life with the idea that the more I worship, the more worry disappears. And that inverse relationship between worrying and worshiping is the difference between being able to walk with the confidence of knowing that I serve a God who's more powerful than anything that I'm ever going to encounter outside today. And the one thing I've tried to do is, you know, I, when I have my worship, my worship is a little different. My wife is a musician, sings, real talented. I think I told you guys I have no artistic ability. You know, my name is Orlin. I struggle with the O. I, I have all kind of, you know, I, but I love reading one Psalms every day. And my worship always includes one Psalm every day. And I start at Psalms 1, and I go all the way through 150, and then I start back over again because by the time I get back to Psalms 1 again, I got a whole different experience and that scripture talks to me in a different way. And the reason that I love the Psalms is because David has probably been through more than any of us may ever go through in life. He's had ups, he's had downs, he's had wins, he's had losses, he's had adultery, he's had murder. You know, he's had being a shepherd, he's been a king, he's had people who wanted to kill him, then he had people who he wanted to kill. All of the stuff that David has been through is in there, and guess what? He's described as being a man after God's own heart. And for me, why I love reading the Psalms is because it tells me that if David can be a man after God's own heart, after all of this, then Orlin Johnson still has a shot. And as long as I still have a shot, then I can wake up every day and decide to myself, this may be where God has for me to go. Let's go to another text. Interesting one. Titus 1, verses 6 through 8. Titus 1, verses 6 through 8. An interesting text that talks about the concept of your shepherd being an overseer, but still there being some stewardship even in that role. Titus 1, verses 6 through 8. Somebody read that for us. Mm, a lot of responsibility there. But this is what God expects anybody who wants to be a leader for him to be. He wants to make sure that you understand that you're supposed to be a good husband and you're supposed to be a good wife. It's not enough to be a great pastor, but you're a bad husband. It's not enough to be a good leader in your church, but you have other issues that are causing people to go astray. The responsibility that God is telling us, and this is what he's basically is saying as a man who wants to be in charge or as a woman who wants to be in charge, 
These are the things that you must be a good steward of. You don't get a chance to basically just walk around and do whatever you feel like doing. You have to make sure that you are 100% with God, can't be quick-tempered, can't be somebody who's focusing on greed or gain. You have to be somebody who loves good. You have to be self-controlled. You have to be upright, and you have to be holy and disciplined despite the fact that most of the people around you will be none of those things. That's where the struggle begins. If everybody in the room is holy and disciplined, we're all good. But guess what? Only one out of ten of you is going to be that way. And the nine other ones that are in there, you're thinking, their life doesn't look that bad. Why aren't I hanging out with them? But the Lord wants us to know that we have to be a peculiar people. We have to be a people who are going to stand out from the rest. Part of being a good steward is being willing to be different. Being willing to be a manager and not be an owner. Being willing to do for others and not focus on self. Being willing to be upright and not lay down just because everybody else wants to act crazy. And God tells you that if you are willing to be all of these things, that I will have a home for you someplace where it will be more extraordinary than anything that you can have right now. You know, I was preaching a sermon the other day, and, and we were talking about the Garden of Eden, and I was thinking about the fact that, you know, Adam had to make a choice while he was in the Garden of Eden that basically changed the world forever. And I've been a guy, I've been married about almost 30 years now, and I thought to myself, there are lots of things my wife could probably ask me to do that I would do and not even think about it. And I thought about Adam being in the Garden that day and Eve coming up to him and say, hey, the serpent says that this isn't going to kill us. Go ahead and take it. Now, I'm a man, I know, we don't multitask well. We, we don't always stay real focused. And sometimes we rely on certain things that we probably shouldn't. But I also thought to myself, but there must have been some kind of love that must have been in his heart that day. Because although Eve was deceived, Adam made a conscious choice. Eve was fooled by somebody but Adam decided, oh, I know where this is going to go, and I'm still going to go down this road. Sometimes we say to ourselves, you know, that was probably not the way to go. But in the same breath, I also think to myself that unless I've been there and felt it and knew what that experience was, I don't really have the ability to judge. Now, there are two people I want to see when I go to heaven. I want to see Jesus, but the next person I want to see is Eve. Because I believe there was something about Eve that would cause someone to want to throw away all of mankind. And I'm just curious to know what that looks like. Just curious to know what that looks like. Because in my mind, we try to see things in a certain way. But in reality, the Bible tells us that there are things that we will see in heaven that are so beyond anything that you can even imagine. You know, we walk around and we see and what we talk about are good-looking people here and beautiful people here. When we get to heaven, we're going to see things that are going to make what we call beautiful unattractive. We're going to see things that are going to be so far off into a whole nother level that your mind can't even conceive it. And we're going to be that way too. So what's going to happen is all of a sudden we're going to look at ourselves and wonder, who is this sexy dude, you know? I don't remember this person, but it's because when you do what God has asked for you to do, he will start to transform things in a way. Let's go to one more text. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 3 through 5. 
Timothy chapter 1, and verses 3 through 5. Anyone have that one? 1 Timothy. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. The aim of this charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Even when you are helping to correct people, it has to be with a good heart, it has to be with a perfect conscience, and it has to be with love and with faith. God has called us to be stewards in which we actually are responsible for helping to protect other people. Just because somebody has done something they're not supposed to do does not mean that we can treat them any way we want. You know, when you think about Ananias, who was the first person that Paul saw after his eyes were opened up on the road coming um, to uh, Macedonia, or Damascus, rather. Can you imagine if Ananias was somebody who had a bad attitude, didn't want to do what God would have to do, and all of a sudden Paul opens his eyes and the first Christian that he sees is somebody that is not a good reflection of Christ? Let me put some pressure on you. We need to live our life every day like we may be the only Christian that some people may see. We have to live our life every day as though they don't get to see another Christian after me. Because if I show them the wrong path, they may never get back on this path again. And what this scripture is telling us, that in order to be a good steward, you also have to be in a position where you are willing to lift up Christ at all times and live a life of which you may be the only witness they ever get to see that represents your God. And it's so critical that we put ourselves in a position that we make sure that that is something that we are constantly doing. I'm going to throw in one more text. What time is it? Now we can take one more. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3. And this is Paul talking about stewardship. Somebody read that for us. Just hold that for one second. For this reason, Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you as Gentiles. A prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you as Gentiles. In other words, Paul is making clear that he is enslaved with his Christianity. He is so connected with Christ that he views himself as being in a prison that he is incapable of coming out, or guess what, or chooses not to come out on behalf of him bringing Christ to the Gentiles. Continue on. If indeed you have heard of the administration of the favor of God that was given to me for you, that by revelation was made known to me the secret of the hope for you. And in the King James, he talks about assuming that you have heard about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. 
the ultimate protection of stewardship that all of us has is being a great steward of the grace of God. There is not one of us that hasn't been given that. And our responsibility is to protect that stewardship, to protect that grace, to give it to somebody else so that they can be in a position where they understand where you're supposed to go and, and what you're supposed to do. But more importantly, you do it so that one day, Somebody else may one day see Jesus because of what you have brought to the table. Question right here. All the time. In my thinking, in my desires, everything I do. But I cannot, and I've never been able to do it by myself. I've always wanted to be a good man. Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. The thing of this, the strategy that sometimes we try to do, okay, I've got to do this, that, that, in order to please Christ. Mm -hmm. Mm. And if we accept that, we don't have to live in fear of not being accepted and doing everything right. And I, I'm just saying that out of my heart. I, I've always wanted to be a Christian. Mm. But I can't do it by myself. I've tried all my life. Mm -hmm. And I've failed again and again. Mm -hmm. Yes. We deserve it. No, we don't deserve anything. But we deserve Christ's love because he loved us first. Absolutely. And the thing of it is that I I just wanted to express the fact that I mean we can do and when I was speechless, I totally transgressed the fact that sixty-one years old. Mm-hmm. Yes. Jesus wants your heart. He wants it in you so that you will not have fear of any trials. One time a boy came to me in my dormitory and he said, you know, I think I am the spiritual. Mm. And I said, you know, I said, I think that the Lord said that. But yet I, I just wanted to express one thing, the fact that I, you know, if Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, in my life, 
Amen. Right. And your point is really so on point because I will tell you at my age, the one thing that I wish that I could have understood better when I was younger. I mean, the one thing that really I miss is really understanding that scripture that says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these other things will be added unto you. It it doesn't even say that you've got to negotiate for it that you even got to ask for it. If you seek first the kingdom of God, it's as though your boat starts to rise because the water just starts to come in. And and that is the area that I try, I tell my wife, if I could get my children to understand that one point, that if you just seek him first, you'll never worry about jobs, you'll never worry about money, you'll never worry about relationships, Because everything else comes when you do that. And that's the one thing. I've known that scripture my whole life. But to embody that scripture, I feel like I'm just beginning to understand it. I'm just beginning to understand it. So I understand your point. Please continue on. It sounds like your son understands that he's a steward and that God is actually the owner. And that is the goal that I would have for all of us as we go through this week of talking about stewardship, that we would all come to the conclusion that God is the owner and we just have to manage the operation. And at one point in time, he will come and we will have to turn over our books and records of this operation to him. And then he will tell us whether or not, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I will tell you this, 
to have a child nowadays that grows up who even wants to still go to church is nothing but a blessing from God. To have a child who grows up that wants to tell you that they have created a business that they have given to Jesus, I will tell you from personal experience that you have to thank the Lord that you've done something right in your life. Because I will tell you the number of people that would come to you today that would tell you if one of my children was still in the church or if one of my children still loved the Lord or if one of my children still thought that sending their kids to Christian education was important, the world would be a different place. So I will tell you beyond any shadow of a doubt to have a son who grows up to tell you that I've given my business to Jesus you should consider that to be one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given you. And never question whether or not what I've done in the past is either what God has in store for me, because something has impacted that young man in a way that he understands that he's supposed to be a steward and that God is going to be the owner. And it would be my prayer to live a life so that somebody may see something in me to understand that it is not about me. You know, whenever I go places and I'm almost nervous when people read my bio or, or tell people, you know, well, this is what Orlin has done. This is where he has worked. This is the accomplishments that he's had. And I've tried to make it my business to never, ever preach or be up in a public space where somebody has an idea who I am and not make it crystal clear to them that everything you see in me and what I have done is the fact that I serve a God who's in the blessing business. Don't for one minute think that there was something special or extraordinary about me. Because I realize, as most of you do, one wrong turn in any other point of your life and you would not be sitting here today. It's no different for me. I mean, I grew up in some of the toughest neighborhoods in New York that you could imagine. I have friends that have spent most of their lives in jail that went to the same church I went to, that had the same Pathfinder director I had, that had the same elementary school teacher that I had. But every now and then, the Lord tells you one day, go this way instead of that one, and your whole life is different. And my only goal that I would have for all of us is to be the type of stewards in life so that one individual sees it. Because remember, you only need one star in your crown to get into the club. One star. They're not asking you to save a neighborhood. They're not asking you to save a community. They're not asking you to save a church. One star. That's the game. Get one star in your crown, and you will see Jesus. And to me, that's what this thing is all about. I'm old enough to know that it's not about me. I didn't know that 10 years ago. I definitely didn't know that 20 years ago. And when I was in my 20s, I always thought it was about me. But I've learned now at this age, it has so little to do with me. And it has everything to do with him. The Apostle Paul says, the good that I would do, I don't. But the evil I thought that I would never do, I do. Because we're all born in sin, and we're shaping in iniquity. And those things that we believe that we are, we're not. And our best is only as filthy rags. And so I just want to close by telling everyone today, and I want to open up for any other questions you have, but I just want to end with this thought, that stewardship is not about money. Stewardship is not about tithe and offering. Stewardship is managing the gifts that God has given you 
in a way that will allow him to be uplifted and handed off to somebody else. And if you do that every day of your life, I think it's almost going to be impossible for you not to see Jesus one day. Any other questions, comments, thoughts? Oh, the website, sure. So the Spiritual Gifts website, thank you for mentioning that. I did mine this morning again just to check, make sure that I'm still who I think I am. Uh, hold on one second. Still cooking. Still cooking. Matter of fact, my wife said to me last night after we got done eating dinner, she said, honey, I really miss your soup. I said, I know, baby, don't worry about it. You'll get some when we get back home. Hold on one second. Where is my gifts? Just give me one second here. I think it's called, hold on, G-I-F-T-S. Oh, here's my, it is, here it comes, here it comes. The website is giftstest.com. Giftstest.com. Test. T-E-S-T-S. I'm sorry, no. Gifts, plural, test, singular. Giftstest.com. Actually, it's a site that asks you what your religion is. So I had a chance to actually pick that I was Seventh-day Adventist. So it has multiple different religions in there. So this isn't just talking about from an Adventist perspective. This is talking about from a Christian perspective. Giftstest, G-I-F-T-S-T-E-S-T dot com. And I'll tell you, mine came up today that my number one was faith. My number two was exhortation. Uh, my number three was craftsmanship. My number four was discernment. And my number five was giving. So I got work on wanting to give. <laughs> That's right. And I think that when you get an idea of who you are and what you are, so I don't know if any of us will be back here tomorrow, but if you had a chance to kind of go through it tonight and we meet again tomorrow. We'll talk about that a little bit. But that helps you to understand a little bit about what your spiritual gifts are. Because sometimes you say to yourself, what would God have for me to do? But then the bigger question may be, what am I capable of doing? And what is the skill set that he has for me? So thank you for reminding me that. I almost forgot about that. So please take a chance and, you know, do a little bit of research on your own self. Find out what your gifts are. Uh, I don't care how old you are. Your gifts are still in effect. And probably five years from now, it may be something a little bit different. I remember when my grandfather was 92 years old, and he called me one morning. He said, hey, Orlin, I got to go to the DMV. I was like, why? He said, my license expired. I got to go get it updated. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm sure somebody's going to tell us when we get there, you don't get to drive anymore. No one told us that when we got there. Updated his document, drove till he was 100. Scary. <laughs> Scary. <clears throat> but it lets you know that there are certain gifts that you have that God will allow you to take all the way to your grave. And I thought to myself, wow, I hope I get to drive when I'm 100 years old. And I remember when he was 100, he died when he was 103. And when he was 100, he called me one day and he said, hey, Orland, 
I turn 100 today. You know what I want to do? I was like, what? I'd like to drive you somewhere. <laughs> and I was like, Grandpa, 100 is a really good number, but you will have to find somebody else. <laughs> I don't believe that's the gift that God has for me today. But he drove for a couple more years, but it was really powerful. But I love to tell people there is no age where God is done with you. The short term simply is till the moment you can't do anything for him ever again. There is no such thing as long term except one day in heaven with Jesus. Our whole life is just one short term. And the bottom line is, is that you keep doing what God has for you to do till you can't think about it anymore. And I look forward to that. I mean, I look forward to the day when all I can do is know that I can't do anything else but just follow what God would have for me to do. And there is no age. I still think about Elijah running past chariots at age 80. If I could just be a little bit behind the chariot, I'll be fine. But it's just a reminder that when you're doing what God has for you to do, Caleb was doing things at the age of 80 that he said he couldn't even do when he was in his 40s. The bottom line is, is he makes you stronger and better, more improved. Better looking. My wife tell me I'm better looking today than when we first got married. I think she's just being Christ-like. But it sounds good. But the bottom line is it makes a difference in our lives. You had a question? Yeah. Hadn't lost a step. Could have probably led Israel for another 80 years if he needed to. But God called him home because he needed Moses where he was. Not because Moses was done. So please, whatever you do, continue to keep your doing. Be great stewards. Find out what the gifts are that God has in store for you. And you know something? The younger you are and figure out what your spiritual gift is, the more fulfilling your life is going to be. I wish I had figured me out a long time ago. I would have had some real good years instead of those bumpy years that I had to go through because I just couldn't figure it out. But try to figure it out now and, and don't be afraid to get into it. And it will be just one of the most powerful things that you'll ever experience in life. So thank you very much, everybody, and uh, really have a great other rest of the day. Hey, how are you? Hey, Amanda, how are you doing? You doing?